These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. You can be seated. Good morning. If it is your first time, welcome. My name's Char. I am the teaching pastor here at Refuge. And um, we are going through a series right now called A Creative Minority. And we've actually taken this whole year to uh, dedicate it to uh, knowing the Bible and reading it firsthand for ourselves. So we're doing something called the Year of Biblical Literacy. And on Sunday mornings, we're doing a little mini-series throughout the whole Bible just to kind of get a, a bird's-eye view of uh, just different themes and different characters um, in the Scripture. Now, we have been using um, this term, creative minority, to help us understand what it looks like to be God's people in a, in a place that really isn't our home, a place that doesn't have the priorities uh, doesn't have the convictions that we have. What does it look like to, as we just read in Jeremiah 29, what does it look like to seek the welfare of the city that God has called us into? What does it look like to be a part of culture and yet not be um, colonized by culture? Now, the book of Daniel has helped the people of God for centuries in, in thinking deeply and strategically about that, about how to live faithfully to Jesus and his kingdom in a culture that has a competing vision of what it means to be human, what it means to flourish, uh, that has a competing vision of freedom or a competing vision of life. So how do we live in a culture like this and not just exist, but live, live out our faith boldly? How do we cultivate a kingdom of God counterculture? And so we've been using this term, a creative minority, uh, to understand that and kind of unpack that. Now, 
John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, he defines a creative minority this way. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. Now, when we think about what it means to be a creative minority, we should be thinking in terms of Jesus' radical vision of the kingdom of God and its people as seen in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a people whose whole world in life is radically different. I like to call it a kingdom-tuned people. Joachim Jeremiah says this, What is taught in the Sermon on the Mount are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You, speaking to the church, should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So what does it look like for the church? What does it look like for us to be, you know, as it were, billboards for the kingdom of God? So that when people come into interaction, they come in, you know, to this intersection of our lives, that they encounter something different, something otherworldly, that they encounter the kingdom of God, God's very presence. Karl Barth says, when this happens, it will be both radically dissimilar and it will offer a new way of life that is full of promise. I love that. So that means then that our kingdom witness isn't just about critiquing or deconstructing culture. Many times the church has kind of taken that stance. We're anti-culture. And you can see, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but back in the 80s and the 90s, how the church and, you know, we call it white flight, but really it was mainly the church that fled to the suburbs. They ran away from culture. They were anti-culture. But what does it mean not to be anti-culture, but to live in culture with a kingdom of God vision for humanity? for human identity, for purpose and flourishing. And as Barth says, this will include a radical dissimilarity and new incredible hope and potential. So we've been walking through what this creative minority looks like. Um, And so I'll just kind of go over the points that we've covered already, and then we'll get into our latest point this morning. So number one, a creative minority is defined by covenantal community. Our influence as a church will be determined by the level of our self-sacrificial commitment to one another and our neighbors and our willingness to see things through even when things get hard. We were talking weeks ago about how the civic religion of America is individualism, individual freedom and the pursuit of individual happiness. And God's vision is radically different where Jesus says, your burden is my burden. Where he, you know, Paul says in Philippians 2, the mind of Christ is to put others before ourselves. And this is what the whole career of Jesus is about. And he calls his people to that same covenantal community. To be those who would love our neighbors as ourselves, that would put their needs before our own. Will Willimon said this, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus 
is a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. I love that. It's our life together. It's our love for one another. This is what Jesus said. It is by your love for one another that all will know that you are my disciples. Number two, we talked about how a creative minority is fueled, driven, and framed by a compelling counter-narrative. It's the full biblical story of God's loving relationship with his people. We were created by God. We are created for God. We fell out of relationship with God because of human sin and evil, but God sent Jesus on a rescue mission to redeem us, to bring us back into relationship with God, and God will finally restore that one day, a new heaven and a new earth. Out of that biblical narrative flows a substitute vision for the economy. Uh, flows a substitute vision for education, for human sexuality, and many other areas. All of these larger issues fill into, fit into this all-encompassing story. And we need to tell this story. It's a more compelling story than our culture tells. A secular redemptive narrative has nothing to, to it has no foundation. You're an accident, your life is going nowhere. All of your feelings for, you know, ro- romantic feelings, they're, they're nothing. They're just triggers firing your brain. They mean nothing. And yet, no one lives that way. The Bible offers us a, an incredible and compelling narrative. You have been created by God, and you have been created for God to join him in the renewal of all things. We need to live out that compelling narrative. Number three, a creative minority is defined by countercultural ethics or a distinct moral vision. We talked about this last week. The people of God or a creative minority are not formed by the culture around them, whether modern, postmodern, secular, spiritual, or religious. God's people are formed by the word of God, the redemptive narrative of scripture we just talked about, and the way of Jesus I, think, I don't think that there is any more important document in all of Scripture than that the church would study again and again the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus' vision for who his people are to be, what his people are to do. And we should be constantly coming back to that again and again and again to learn the ethics of the kingdom, to learn and to assimilate that moral vision of the kingdom in order to put that on display for the world. Now, this morning, we come to um, our fourth distinction of a creative minority, and that is that a creative minority is defined by counter-formational practices. A creative minority is defined by counter-formational practices. Now, humans are habit-forming, liturgical creatures. It's what we are. And it shows up in all sorts of ways. We have personal habits and rhythms around everything we do. And our culture has habits and liturgies as well. And these habits, or liturgies, whatever you prefer, they shape our desires and they make us who we are. They make us who we are. I think about Paul's words to the church in Rome when he says, Stop letting the world form you into its image. 
Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might discover the good and acceptable will of God. Now, if it was true in Paul's day that culture was forming people into its image, I mean, how much more in our day and age, right? Every day we are being shaped, groomed, formed by some object of desire, some grand narrative. We get it from social media, Wired Magazine, Magnolia, The Washington Post, Fox News, New York Times, NPR, the latest Apple product, Amazon, Netflix, Silicon Valley, the latest film, right? Record or podcast that just dropped the major cultural hubs. And it's constant. So when talking about this idea of a creative minority, how do we live in this culture without being formed to its image? Uh, with How do we live in this culture without just like adopting all of its rhythms and all of its practices? How do we influence instead of being influenced? And I believe we must have counter-formational practices. We have to have counter-liturgies that shape us as the people of God. Now, if you have do I know the passage, actually? (laughs) Um, So in Daniel, I think it's in chapter... I think it's in chapter 6. I should have been prepared. Actually, skip this. We'll, we'll find out later. <laughs> so, in the story of Daniel and the lion's den, as we traditionally call it, um, we have a really beautiful example of this counterformation in Daniel's life. So, in, in chapter 6, it is chapter 6, some of the princes in the Persian Empire have convinced the king to make a law that no one can pray or petition any god except the king for 30 days. And the reason they do this is because Daniel is such a righteous man, and he, he rules so well among the princes, that they're like, the only way we're going to get Daniel in trouble is because of his religion. So we're going to make it, we're going to outlaw his religion so we can kill him, basically, is what they try to do. So Daniel, he finds out that they've done this, and they King writes it into law. And it, so when Daniel knew, it says that the document had been signed, what does he do? He goes and he hides out in a cave somewhere, you know, and just waits for the 30 days to pass. No, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then again, in chapter 9 of Daniel, we read this. Daniel is, it says that he is seeking God because he understands that the exile is is about to be over. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill, that's Jerusalem, of my God, while I was speaking in prayer... The man Gabriel, that's an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So two things, one from each of these passages. In the first instance, Daniel practices a way of life defined by his faith in God, not according to the rules or rhythms of Babylon or what everyone else would do. In the next example, Daniel is praying confessing his sin, the sin of his people, pleading with God at the time of the evening sacrifice. Are the sacrifices going on in Jerusalem at this time? 
Remember, the, the beginning of the whole story of Daniel is that the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. So the sacrifices are not happening at the temple in Jerusalem. Hold on. How long has it been since they haven't been happening? Oh, almost 70 years. And Daniel's like, oh, it's evening sacrifice time. Nearly 70 years has gone by, and yet the temple, the worship of God, was what set the rhythm of life for Daniel. I think that this is so fascinating. And we've talked in the past about how Daniel was raised under the reformation or revival that was brought about by King Josiah. That the sacrifices, the temple sacrifices, the the priesthood, the law, all of this was reinstituted. And I believe that this truly was an anchor for Daniel, for his soul, for his friend's souls as they went into Babylon. But you can see here how Daniel, even in Babylon, after 70 years that he is still ordering his life, the rhythm of his life is according to the worship of God. Not according, of course, to the worship of Marduk, but not even according to the rhythms of Babylon. It's according to Jerusalem. He keeps Jerusalem time, even in Babylon. And I think that this should really cause us to question and ask who or what sets the timetable and rhythms of our life? Do I? Does scripture, does culture, and then to ask, okay, then, So whose image am I being formed in? If habits and liturgies shape our desires and make us who we are, then whose image am I being shaped in? Like Paul, am I being shaped into the world's image because I am just allowing it to happen to me and I am not practicing any counterformation. I'm not swimming upstream in any way. I'm just going with the flow. Now, some of us, you know, maybe we don't even realize that. There, um, David Foster Wallace, he, he's got this um, article he wrote, I think, for the New York Times. And he begins it by saying, you know, there's two fish swimming along one day, and a bigger fish, you know, passes them going the other way. And he says, hey, fellas, how the water? how's the water? And he keeps swimming. And finally, the fish turns to the other fish and goes, what the hell is water? And they just keep going. They just have no idea, like, because they're swimming. It's just, it's just all around them. It's so pervasive, you have no idea that it's even happening to you. Well, it is happening to you, and as it's happening to all of us, right? And as citizens of heaven, children of God, we are to have an image of God, family of God, rhythm to our life, rather than the rhythms and priorities that define our culture. So just like the Broderson family, that's my last name, by the way, I'm not just throwing some Scandinavian name out there. Um, The Broderson family has a rhythm. We have things that we prioritize. So also the family of God has these priorities as well. We, We remember that the early church had a rhythm of life, a way of living that they all held in common. Remember that they committed themselves to the Jesus story or the apostles' doctrine. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread, to the Jesus sacrifice. They committed themselves to fellowship or the Jesus way of living. 
They committed themselves to prayer, to Jesus' access to the Father. They committed themselves. This was part of their weekly and often daily rhythm to gather with one another, to be formed by the story of God. But what about beyond that? So what about our lives outside of the gathering of the church? Because here I believe that we are doing counterformation this morning. Even the fact that we pledged allegiance to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning, and we didn't pledge allegiance to the flag, right? Why? Because we're citizens of heaven. This is our story, and not the story of individual freedom and individual happiness. The songs that we sing, the truth that we proclaim, these are liturgical habit-forming things that we're doing in order to shape our desires, in order to be shaped into the image of God. Even the preaching of the word, fellowship, everything that we're doing is counterformation for the kingdom of God. But then we have to ask, what about our own lives? And I'll, I'll come back to this in a moment because I want to talk for a minute about our distracted and frantic age for just a minute. Now, currently in our culture, everywhere we turn, there is information to learn content to receive, to take in. There's the constant pressure to continually educate ourselves. Anybody else feel this? Never waste a moment's time. How could you when there is so much to learn, to know, to assimilate? You're doing the dishes, put on a podcast. You're folding laundry, put on the new Netflix you know, documentary. You're like, never waste a moment, right? Your best life awaits you. All you lack is the necessary information. And these days, there is no end to what you can know or what you should know. Anybody else feel that pressure? There's a hundred lives to live, and you should live them all and experience them all. A world of endless possibilities, and you should not miss one of them. There's a new docuseries on the secret occult practices of the presidents of the U.S., a new podcast on healthy living, an article on a healthy gut that will radically change how you feel in every way, tips on great relationships, how to psychoanalyze your sex life, and then there is the random sidebar article, you'll never believe what these Hollywood stars look like today. (laughs) Don't do it! Like, Right? I made all that up. That's not real. At least, I mean, it might be real. The secret occult practices of the U.S. presidents. Maybe that is real. Um, Part of the problem of our distracted age is we carry around many computers everywhere, right? And the world of information is always within our grasp. There is the never-ending constant calling of, read this. Do something new and novel. Watch this. Buy this new thing. It will change your life. As I was preparing this message, no joke, I received an email from Twitter. I deleted my Twitter a while ago. I didn't unsubscribe the emails, apparently. Uh, I deleted my Twitter a while ago. I deleted my Instagram. I've shared that with you guys. Uh, But as I was preparing this, I received an email from Twitter, and it said this. Did you see this great tweet? And then it read, following means you'll never miss a thing. Oh, What am I missing? How many things am I missing? What has Trump done now, right? Like, you know, and the list goes on or whatever, right? I mean, but 
I mean, we're always finding something to critique, something to question, something to think about, and it's out there full of, and oh, and here's the other thing, right? Attached to this email is a video of a cat with huge sad eyes, just like, it's like, how, how does one resist, you know? It's a cat, you know, and he's so cute. I didn't. I resisted, actually. I don't know how I did it. But quite a few of our culture's spiritual leaders and health professionals have begun to talk about the lasting negative effects that social media and instant information are having upon society. Studies are showing that we are living at one of the most prosperous and safe times in human history. Yet, people are filled with unprecedented anxiety. Some studies have shown that the rise in suicide and suicidal thoughts is equal to the amount of screen time and time spent with social media. Not only that, I've had some recent conversations with individuals where they have described moments of total panic and anxiety as they've had a quiet moment to stop and think about their life. All of a sudden, you know, you're alone by yourself. You're in an elevator going to an appointment, right? And everybody gets off, doors close. Oh, no. Char is alone. What does Char do when he's alone? Who is he when he's by himself? You know, I don't have my family. I don't have my wife. I don't have all my identity, you know, markers are not around me. What is the purpose? Where is it all going? What is it all amounting to? Only to be interrupted by a banner alert text from their phone. The moment has passed, and I would like to say this. It has been pacified, but it has not been healed. That is what is happening right now with many of us. We are distracted from what is really going on in our hearts. I believe that we are distracted from a work that the Holy Spirit would like to do in sanctifying us, in giving us a solid identity in God as his beloved children, as those who are on mission with God for the renewal of our city, for the renewal of the world. Many of us have become good at avoiding ourselves, avoiding thoughts and reflection, and probably for many of us, because of the massive amount of anxiety it brings when we think about who we are compared to who we want to be, compared to who culture is telling us we need to be, being alone with our thoughts is disturbing. But life is actually okay when you're not thinking deeply about it, when you're distracted, just going from one thing to the next thing incessantly. Now, though I think I am an old soul, (laughs) I think about C.S. Lewis. He once wrote this foreword to, I think it's um, Athanasius' book on the Incarnation, He's like, you know, just, I know I'm saying all these old things that sound like, you know, I want everybody to go back to ancient times. He's like, well, then consider me a dinosaur. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm a dinosaur like C.S. Lewis. But I'm not here this morning to tell you to kill your television, delete your Facebook, or any other thing like that. But if non-Jesus people, people who are not the light or the salt of the world, are talking and thinking strategically about this stuff and how it is deforming us. I would say how it is making us less human. We've seen the effects of social interaction, right? How it is so dehumanizing. 
and the things that people say to one another when you're just looking at a screen and not looking at someone's face. When you're not interacting with someone's emotions. It's deforming us. It's making us less in the image of God. If secular people are talking about this, then we definitely should be. And so this morning, I do want to exhort and encourage you that as a follower of Jesus and one who is called to be a disruptive witness for the kingdom of God, you must live by a different rhythm. If you are going to faithfully follow Jesus and faithfully represent him to the world, you must live by a different rhythm. Otherwise, you will be doing Christianity Right? You will be trying to do disruptive witness from past experiences. You will try to do it from stale bread and wine gone bad. A place maybe of once where you had intimacy with Jesus, where you cherished the bread and the cup, that moment to be with him, to thank him, to enjoy his presence. But past experiences cannot long endure the hardships of this world and life in this distracted age. What you need, what I need, and what the world needs, church, is living presence. It needs the living Messiah. How can we ever think that we could be a disruptive witness for the kingdom of God? How could we think that we could be human with other humans? Showing the God of grace and mercy and justice, the relational, oh, so personal God, if we are not relationally connecting with him ourselves. If we have been made in his image. If, if, if God and and. Who he is, is ultimately what it means to be human. We're reflections of that, or to be reflections of that. How can we think that we can actually be human with one another? Thrive and flourish. Be a disruptive witness in our culture without being with our Father. Without being in his presence. How sad, and and, and truly, I mean this, like... Sad for me, sad for you, that we would try to offer the world the living water and not drink from it ourselves. And I've lived that life. I've experienced that. I, I lived a Christianity for many years where I was just doing the things I was trying to figure out, but just doing the things. And I believed that the gospel was true. I believe that God is Father. I believe that Jesus is Savior. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I'll right, just do the Apostles' Creed again. Um, I believe in life everlasting. And yet, I myself was not experiencing that life. And, and to think that you could do evangelism or that you could do mission or that you could even reach out to others with a hopeful message when you are not living in that hope yourself is tragic. It's tragic. It's not what God desires for us. It's not what he's created us for. You know, I I personally think, and I have made this mistake from this pulpit, I have made the mistake of appealing to you simply through intellect. 
information dump. But humans are more than just brains on a stick. We are relational creatures made in the image of God who is relational in his very nature, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are creatures that desire and feel, emotional creatures, creatures that love and want to be loved. And one of the greatest offers of the Christian faith is to have, to cultivate a loving child-to-father, father-to-child relationship with the God of the universe because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I, ha- I have to say that as a pastor and a leader in this church, I have struggled for years to, to find a balance of pushing and stirring up and then the other side of just affirming. And I still struggle with this because I never want to give the church the impression that we are a means to the end for God. I don't think that's true. Now, some people do believe that, that it's all just for God's glory. That's, just what it's, that's all God cares about is his glory. And you're just a piece of that, you know? I don't think that's true when I read the story of the Bible and I read about who this relational God is. I don't think we're just a means for an end. I don't think the church exists just for mission, as some people would say. I believe that God has created us for relationship. And we see again and again and again in Scripture is that the model is the family. God has created the the family as a mirror of himself or how he wants to be with us. Remember Jesus, the way he spoke most often about God was the Father. The Father. The Father. And he would say things to the disciples like, oh, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And sometimes when he would, you know, chastise them, he would say, oh, your faithlessness. Oh, like it would bum him out, but he would never like chastise them harshly. It, it, it was always that family type of dynamic, and I'm on a tangent right now, but I want to say that we need more of that affirmation of just being the people of God and individually just to be with God. To cultivate an identity in God's presence as beloved children apart from what we have done or what we do to be loved because he loves us. That is absolutely essential to a disruptive witness. You cannot testify to something that you are not experiencing yourself. Not really. Not with sincerity. Not with power. So how do we do this? How do we connect with God in this way? And what I'm going to suggest this morning, what I'm talking about, has historically been called the spiritual disciplines. These are ancient practices. Just, you know, if you are a Bible person that's like, wow, it's not in the Bible, like, I don't know. Well, there's a lot of stuff that's not in the Bible, so bear with me. These are ancient practices going all the way back to the early church and church fathers 
all that to say they are safe. <laughs> but often they have been neglected or dismissed in evangelical circles. And yet, I believe these practices are in desperate need for the church in our time. I read a book, um, I think two years ago now, by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And this just has set with me since that time. She says, what our culture craves, what we crave is novelty and stimulation. I mean, just go back to our conversation a moment ago just about social media, about our phones, about the information age. Novelty and stimulation. Even think about the way we view sex, of course, right? Yes, that makes so much sense. The way we view products, everything is novelty. Everything is stimulation. She says, what we need is repetitive, ancient, and quiet. What we crave is novelty and stimulation. What we need is repetitive, ancient, and quiet. So there are many spiritual disciplines, and we're not going to go through them all, so just breathe a deep breath. (laughs) But I just want to cover a few of them this morning, uh, four in fact. And so the first I want to talk about is silence and solitude. And I want to begin by just asking this. When, if ever, was the last time you sat in silence and simply enjoyed God's presence? If you are a mom and you have multiple children, I would imagine that it's been a while. It's like silence. What is that? Solitude. Say again, what word is this? (laughs) To be able to sit with God and sometimes not have to say a word, as you can do in the best of relationships, all the while knowing the great depth and richness of the love between you. Being fully known, as David says in Psalm 139, you are before me, behind me, you have hedged me in. You know my thoughts before I think them. You know my sitting down and my rising up. There is nowhere that I could flee from your presence, O Lord. Fully known and yet fully loved. Our souls need this. They need this. Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, says this, One of the primary functions of solitude is to settle into ourselves in God's presence. This is not easy, and it takes time. But, listen to this, it is the answer to the heart cry that erupts when we have been distracted for too long by surface concerns. I have lost myself, we cry. Who am I? Where am I going? Solitude, she says, is the only way to find ourselves again. And the longer we have been lost to ourselves, caught up with external stimulation, the longer it takes to find our way home again. Culture keeps offering us novelty and stimulation. And we can keep doing that, we can keep doing that, and keep doing that, but I promise you, you will awake to the moment and you will cry, I've lost myself. You will have that moment of panic. What am I doing? Where am I going? 
You have lost your identity, and yet you belong to God. You belong to him. You're his. You're his child. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And yet you're neglecting all the riches of that relationship and yet trying in some way to still live for God? We all do this. We all do this. Now, my own personal journey, I've been a Christian for nearly 20 years. And you guys know I, I love to study. I love to read. I don't even know how many times I've read through the Bible. And I just do it again and again. Like my life the last 20 years has been the year of biblical literacy, truly. And, but you know what? I came to a place about a year ago in my life where I was lost. I needed a guide. Lord, I need, I need, I need a fellow to journey my path with me. I didn't know what to do. The scripture was stale. It, it wasn't doing anything. I, I didn't feel that I was cultivating the presence. So I began to kind of seek out the spiritual disciplines. I, I read a book by Dallas Willard called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's an excellent book to just kind of introduce you to these practices. Um, there's another book called The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. And I, what I love about these books is they say it's not about reading, it's about doing. They're literally like handbooks, like sit down, shut up, and do this exercise. It's like that's exactly what I, I needed a teacher. Now, right now, I'm reading through Peter Schizero's Emotional Healthy Spirituality, not his book, but the daily office that he does. So is anybody familiar with the daily office? You have an Anglican, maybe Presbyterian background. So the daily office is, goes back to the early church as well. And what this was, it was uh, scheduled prayer throughout the day. And I think in, a, in its original form, um, it was three or more times a day that you would just stop and you would take time for silence and solitude and you would take a psalm in and you would pray that psalm back to the Lord. And, you know, there are even songs that we, that we sing that describe this, you know, breathing in your grace and I'm breathing out your praise. And that's the idea, to breathe in the word of God and then to exhale in praise and thanksgiving. But it's an exercise, it's an exercise of taking God's word in, taking it into our heart. It's an exercise to sit and be quiet, as I was describing a moment ago, in God's presence. And so I've been doing this every morning and trying to remember to do it in the evenings with Peter Schizero. Have you ever, when was the last time you tried like two minutes of silence? Guys, I am horrible at this. I'm like a golden retriever. You know, it's like, and I, I've been using psalms, you know, so like um, one that is really helpful for me, my soul finds rest in God alone. I will use that to just remind myself to sit quiet in God's presence. And it's literally like, my soul finds rest in God. Bird, you know, I'm like, oh, my soul finds rest in God alone. Person, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's bad. And I, I'm getting better. But all that to say, I cannot tell you, the last month this has proved to be a saving grace in my life just to be silent in the presence of the Lord, to remove all distraction, to remove all pieces of my identity outside the fact that I have been purchased by God, that he loves me, that he will never leave me or forsake me, and to sit and just receive those truths in his presence, to sit quietly. Our souls need this. We need silence and we need solitude. We need to, I'll talk about this in a minute when we talk about Sabbath, but we need to unplug and break from the hubbub, from the 
you know, pace of life right now. It's insane. Two other recommendations, you can just simply pick up a common book of prayer and you can use that for a daily office. If this is like scratching a niche for you, if this is something, if this is speaking to your soul, then I've got a few recommendations. You can see me afterwards. A second spiritual discipline that is just foreign to our life is Sabbath. Sabbath. And, you know, we just live in, in this society that just says, do, 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 learn, 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 work, work, work. How can you waste any time? If you're going, you know, and, and I even think sometimes that is the carrot, and the, you know, carrot and the stick that it's saying, oh, well, how can you Sabbath unless you work hard? But you know, you know that you know that it's never ending. There, there is a never ending pull, a never ending voice that speaks to us that we, we, we must keep working or it will, life will fall apart. Now, Sabbath is about more than external rest of the body. It is about inner rest of the soul, and we need rest from the anxiety and strain of our overwork, which many times is just an attempt to justify ourselves, to gain the money or the status or the reputation we think we have to have, or our culture tells us that we need. But avoiding overwork requires deep rest in Jesus' finished work. You have to have a solid identity. Or you won't be able to let go. You have to know that your Father has got you, has got it, whatever that is. Only then can you walk away regularly from your vocational work and rest. So Sabbath, though, is the key to getting that balance that our, our souls need. We need to make a rhythm of rest. I've had a few experiences lately. Grace, try, Grace and I try to do this, but just try to set a day aside each week if we can. You know, we work to do this, but just to rest. And the other day, we just went out to the river. I think it was Memorial Day, so most of us were resting, right? But, you know, we just packed a lunch. We're not going to barbecue. We're not going to, um, we're not going to do hospitality that day. Like, we're just not. We just need to rest. It was just so beautiful just to be out in nature, just enjoying the hot sun, the cool water, enjoying friends. It's just what our souls needed just to unplug. And, you know, like, phones don't work out there. Thank God. Like, gosh. Maybe I won't tell you to kill your television, but I might tell you to kill your phone. Um, third one, prayer. This goes back to the morning and the evening, the daily office. But I've talked about this many times. But the church has long practiced a rhythm of evening and morning prayer, often called the daily office. And the idea is to start and end each day connecting with, talking to, casting our care upon our Father in heaven who cares for us. And I've said this before, but I will say it again. Most of us let our phones cast their cares and their weights upon us. We all use it. I think most of us use it for our alarm clock and how easy it is, right, to turn off the alarm and then just to see what's going on, right? The alerts, somebody liked your picture or commented on your picture or whatever it might be. It's the latest news, right? And just immediately we go into the day. And that then sets the rhythm. That sets the tone for our day rather than letting Abba, letting our Father, letting the blood of Jesus and that identity in Christ set the schedule set the tone for our day. We need to be counterformational people, and I think it starts with just these simple practices. 
I love the idea, and I, I, I practiced this for quite some time, but in the evening, I would uh, take the Lord's Prayer, and I would say, Lord, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, and, and I would just kind of lay it all on the Lord. I got this from Eugene Peterson, but it was like, a, I'm going to push back onto God his mission, his sovereignty, all this stuff, because I'm going to sleep. God, you've got it, and I'm going to cast all my cares upon you, and I'm going to lay down, and I'm going to get real rest tonight. But in the morning, I'm going to connect with my Father, and I'm going to take up that task again. I'm going to work with God. I'm going to practice the way of Jesus with you guys for the renewal of our city. But we need this rhythm of giving to God what we cannot handle, recognizing that he's got it as we sleep. It's the Lord that sustains us. It's the Lord that gives us rest. It's the Lord that wakes us up again in the morning. This is a great rhythm in liturgy for our lives. Last one, fasting. Or Sorry, there's two more. Fasting. We've been talking about fasting quite a bit this year. As we fast, we do so in solidarity with the world of suffering, pain, and evil, our own sin and brokenness. We put off the bread that will not satisfy in order to hunger for the bread of life. Just that concept alone. This reminder, everything around me is not what I was created for. Every, I will hunger again unless I eat from the bread of life. This is the only thing that can sustain me. Fasting helps us to look to God and to place our desires in God and in his kingdom. Last one, reading of scripture. Now, this one's kind of a no-brainer, right? But let me just say this. There are actually a, a variety of ways to learn and use scripture, and I think many times we only do the factual information, you know, knowing the truth about God. And maybe year of biblical literacy has tended itself towards that. I mean, it's kind of fast, right? Maybe we should have done, like, the years of biblical literacy. Maybe we should have done it in two. I don't know. We'll figure that out later, I guess. But factually, like it's just information. I'm just speed reading. I'm just trying to get the big ideas. Or maybe theologically, inspiration, promises to believe, exploring the revelation of God, things I didn't know, right? Then maybe a little bit better, devotionally, motivation, principles embodied, living the life of God, those same things. But what about contemplatively? What about reading scripture for transformation? What about reading scripture to encounter the presence of God and to enjoy the person of God? Richard Plass and James Cofield in their book, The Relational Soul, they say this, contemplative reading of scripture is structured so that instead of gaining mastery of the text, we are mastered. Instead of increasing our competency, we are encouraged to surrender in humility. Indeed, instead of reading the text, we hope to be read by the text. It is the journey of placing our story into God's story. Thus, the goal of contemplative reading is twofold. First, to confront us with the truth of our own existence by breaking down our spiritual, psychological, and behavior barriers so that we show up as we really are in the presence of God. I remember, uh, I think it was a few months ago, Mike was talking about God sees you, not all the peripheral that you hide behind or that you attach your identity to, but he sees you. 
And contemplative reading does that. It removes all that. It says, truly, in God is my soul at rest. That all of these other things, they're just, the peripheral is removed. And so we come as we really are into God's presence. Not as we project ourselves to be. The masks are taken off. And then secondly, they say, to find ourselves in the very presence of the living God whose presence transforms our souls. Think about what Paul says. We ourselves are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the image of the invisible God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are being daily transformed in that image, but not if we aren't going into the presence. And I, you know, I'm not talking about like a tent or anything like that. Like, I know I'm speaking metaphorically, but understand like to engage with God in this deep way to set time aside for that. It is vital to a disruptive witness. It is vital as we seek to be a creative minority that bears witness to the kingdom of God. Now, I think of the importance and responsibility of the church imaging God for our own personal health and well-being, but I also think about properly imaging God to the culture around us. Most of our lives, the people I talk to are busy, are tired, are frantically living, do, 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 learn, learn, learn. And in these studies, we're talking about being a creative minority, and we're talking We've been talking so much about the intentionality that goes into that, which is important. But all of this to say, activity, kingdom activity, must spring forth from a kingdom identity. It has to, and not the other way around. You can only get that solid identity of who you are in the presence of God by cultivating that presence of your Father through the Son. And that takes time, silence, solitude. That takes rest from all the buzz all around us. Refuge, we need to cultivate a kingdom of God rhythm of life to enjoy God's presence, to lay our burdens down before him, to take up his yoke that is easy and is light. I do believe that the church is called to be a creative minority, but we cannot leave people somewhere that we have not already gone ourselves to do so would be false. And I'll, I'll close with this. It's from an anonymous Hasidic rabbi. Welcome to Refuge Christian Fellowship. Uh, when I was young, he says, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived that this was too ambitious. So I set out to change my state. This too, I realized, as I grew older, was too ambitious. So I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even a state, and who knows, maybe even the world. Now, change yourself. We know that we are changed, we are transformed by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But how many of us have left that off? And we're trying to change oh so many things around us. And we're not allowing that transforming work to happen. A creative minority is marked by counterformative practices. Lord, 
teach us. Teach us, Lord. And Lord, I do ask that as we close this time of reflecting upon what it means to be your people, of what it means to be a people um, who have been redeemed and a people who are about redemption, a people who have been renewed and a people who are about renewal. And so, Lord, teach us. Holy Spirit, lead us. I I pray, Lord, that this morning would not just be taken as a take these things and plug them into my life, but I pray that each of us would go away asking you, Holy Spirit, what are the things that are forming my life, that are shaping me? And then, Holy Spirit, that you would direct each of us that we would do that work of counterformation with you. That we might enjoy your presence, Father. That we might be given and re-given again and again that solid identity as new creations, as children of God, as citizens of heaven. And then, Lord, that we could be sent out to offer the power of renewal, redemption, regeneration of the Holy Spirit to the world around us, God. Do that work in our hearts, Lord, individually. Lord, form us collectively. Give us a solid identity as the people of God here in Santa Rosa, we pray. Amen.